Welcome to another edition of the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson, and our special guest today, Maurice Eisenman. And Tom, we're going to talk uh, without a guest today, I guess since the first time we've done the first show, to kind of look back on the year 2017 and you know some of the things that we're looking forward to as a program, as what we've heard from professionals for 2018. Mm-hmm. But actually, Joe, I need to correct you. <clears throat> I just thought of this. We did do a a, uh, a three-way conversation between the three of us a few months ago when we did a little what we call mini a mini-sode yep. about career advice. So I just happened to catch that the other day when I was looking at some, at some old episodes, and I think that was the last time the three of us actually chatted on tape, so to speak. It's been quite a while. So yeah, why don't so we... Um... to do it again. Yep. Why don't we kind of kick it off and, and let Maurice have the floor? So Maurice Eisenman graduated from the Columbia program, has been working in esports. Uh, we did a show just with Maurice last year where he talked about his rather unique background in music and gaming and playing soccer yeshiva and growing up in Amsterdam and, um, you know, all the stuff that he brings to. And as, as people who've listened to the podcast before know, we kind of reference Maurice as he's sitting in the background, kind of like uh, Boy Gary from Howard Stern, uh, you know, kind of pulling him into various conversations from time to time. And uh, But I think it would be good, Maurice, if you kind of talked about, you know, you've been out now for a while, you've been in the business world, and more importantly, you've probably been listening into a lot of conversations and can probably give us some interesting feedback from some of the guests that we've had on and, and some of the things that you've picked up along the way. So, Maurice, the floor is yours. Yeah, I'll- Thank you for allowing me to step in front of the mic again. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been an incredible journey. I mean, Colombia, and I've said it before, off off mics, I can say it on mic again. Really changed the direction of my career in a positive way. Um, it allowed me to move into a more executive role, and not only do that, but, but at least have the the basic tools necessary to take on that role. So I started um, about six months ago at Wham Network, uh, a soon-to-launch OTT network dedicated to gaming and esports as their director of community and culture, uh, which really means that I, I manage, I'm the gatekeeper between the gaming and most importantly the esports world and on the other hand the network. So really making sure that our, our our content and our signals to the outside world are, are in tune with with the with the community. Uh, at the same time I, I manage our, our esports partnerships. So that's that's been incredible. Uh, and that's that's been a fantastic fantastic experience. So you know, obviously that's that's really important. From the conversations uh, I've had here and and uh, the things I picked up I mean, while this is pretty much evergreen and it's nothing to do with just mm-hmm. 2017, it is, I would say, is to just be, to just ed- educate yourself constantly. Uh, you know, be on Twitter and follow those influencers that have, you know, that tweet out these, these articles and these tidbits that are important for your industry and industries that you're related to. Because um, the pace sports is changing right now. Um, you know, the, everything is digitalizing and, and, and things are changing. Um, it's not enough to just sit back and, and do what you have done for the past however many years. 
uh, you need to be you need to be on in tune with innovation because otherwise you're going to look back a year or two from now and and you're not going to recognize the sports industry anymore. So Maurice, um, why don't you touch a little bit about um, tell us a little bit, give us an update on WAM Networks and especially from your perspective, like where the gaming. Uh, world and esports world have kind of gone in the last couple months, and where do you think, especially in the first quarter of 2018, with Overwatch launching, even in the gaming space with NBA 2K coming around, um, where do you think all that's going to go, and, and who are some of the people that people should be following, and some of the trends that you think are real versus some of the things that are out there, which you know maybe a lot of fluff right now. Yeah, so. Let's start with WAM. So we're launching Q1 of 2018. We're extremely excited. Our content is going to post-production right now, and I've seen some of it, and I'm I'm so excited, and I can't wait to to share it with both of you, and most importantly with with the community. Uh, with regards to to esports and, and and the trends of the past couple months. Uh, Really, you know, we've seen a, a, a few things. We, we've seen franchising, obviously, be the one I think the key trend, whether it is the NALCS, the Overwatch League, or NBA 2K. So that's obviously a big story to follow in, in, in the first couple months of 2018. We'll see all these leagues launch, uh, and it's going to be important to see what platforms are they going to be on, how they're distributing, how are they... How are they getting eyeballs to to their content? So that that will be a very interesting to follow. Obviously, keep an eye out for sponsorships, and and, and that's obviously really interesting because the promise of these franchise league is that they can bring in tons of these non-endemic sponsors. At the same time, uh, people to follow, uh, I would say um, the co-host of my own podcast, Esports Boom. Uh, Anton Ferraro is is a great follow. Um, at the same time, uh, a very underrated follow uh, with regards to esports and most importantly Chinese gaming and esports because that's a market that's that's booming and and we're most of us in the U.S. are not even looking at that. Is um, is Daniel Ahmad, who is also called X on Twitter. Uh, but I'm pretty sure if you type in Daniel Mott, you'll find him. He's a he's an analyst, and 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 he is brilliant. One of the things that uh, I would like to keep out uh, out of 2018, as we're switching away from 17 to 18, is the overhyping of esports. Uh, too many blanket statements are being made that overdeliver, overpromise. Excuse me, overpromise, and will and I don't think the the uh, world is ready yet to, to, to deliver on that. The industry isn't ready for that yet. A uh, uh, great example are all these things, people saying that, you know, eSports, which is the combination of all these titles, you know, is bigger than the NBA or has the potential of being bigger. Let's take it game by game and, 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 and let's mm-hmm. not overhype it. Um, and at the same time, we saw uh, Superdata release their kind of breakdown of esports revenues and 50% of that was investment. So if we're looking at esports revenues, they said, you know, it was 1.3 billion or something. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but 50% of that is, is investment and investment isn't reoccurring revenue. Investment is things that are made once and investments are more like loans, to be honest, than, 
than they are revenue. Uh, sponsorship is way more important, and that's reoccurring. So this overhyping um, will lead people into making unnecessary investments and will only um, will make it impossible for esports to to deliver on that promise. So yeah, I would love I would love for us uh, for us all in in the sports industry to keep that keep that in 2017. But Maurice, let's we got to we got to back up the tape a few weeks to when Monumental Sports in Washington had their NBA 2K Summit. Joe and I have addressed this I think in a, in a recent podcast just briefly, where Ted Leonsis, who I think we all would acknowledge, and certainly I would, and I think Joe agrees with me, as being one of the smartest, most progressive leaders and thinkers in all of sports, um, did make one of those hyperbolic statements about esports where he said he thought it was essentially, I'm paraphrasing, uh, had the potential to be the biggest sport in the world and to dwarf, those are his words, to dwarf both the NFL and the NBA. So, yes. you know, it's interesting because Ted is so influential and, and he's such, he's such a um, well-regarded guy I usually I follow a lot of what he does and says because I used to work with him at AOL and, and previously at NHL. And um, he usually gets it right. If you look at his track record of making, uh, if you want to call them predictions, or looking ahead, he's has a way better track record than most other leaders in the sports business. So it feels like when you get a, an endorsement like that from someone like him, like it really makes me stop and think about it. And one of the things he referenced – was the global nature of esports, which you know you're well aware of, and how when you actually just consider the component parts of what makes a sport popular or big, so huge addressable market, ideally worldwide, uh, very high strong high degree of interaction, interest amongst media to actually distribute it. Uh, interest among sponsors to support it, et cetera, uh, live, events, live events that can attract big crowds, it kind of hits on all those marks. So, so can you respond to Ted's comments? Do you think that was too much hype? Um, first of all, I completely agree with you on your initial statement. I look very much up to Ted. I think he, I think he and his son Zach are incredible and in the things they've done with Team Liquid and that they're doing with the with the Wizards gaming is really incredible. So so no bad words for him. I do, I don't I don't think he meant it the way it was picked up by the media. I cuz cuz the way, you know, if you take esports he said he's he said something like, you know, esports has the potential of being a sport bigger than the NBA or the NFL. I think mm-hmm. what he meant is the combination of all different esports sports, like all different titles, right? Because esports mm-hmm. is a collective term. Uh, just the way as we say sports, we mean soccer, we mean basketball, we mean football. So I think he mm-hmm. meant the collective of esports has the potential and to be bigger than, let's say, an NBA and an NFL. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think he means one particular title. I don't think he means... You know, League of Legends has the potential uh, in the next year to be as to be bigger than the NFL and the NBA. Also, mm-hmm. so but I completely agree. I mean, if you take all of esports together, it definitely has the potential. And I think 
it has the potential of being bigger than traditional sports. It's just a long time from now. And, 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 and with that, I agree. I think it's been kind of picked up by the media in, in a wrong way. Also, when we're looking at bigger, we need to kind of phrase what we mean with bigger. Because do we mean bigger as far as audience sizes? Probably. Um, especially if mobile esports becomes bigger. Um, but if we're meaning bigger as far as revenue and, and distribution, um, probably that's going to be difficult because the revenue margins on esports are a lot smaller than traditional sports. Um, mm-hmm. The ad block rate is way higher on esports than it is on traditional sports, which obviously makes a lot of traditional digital advertising a lot more difficult. So, so yes, as far as audience sizes, if we're taking all the esports together, it has the potential of being bigger than an NBA or an NFL or combined and stuff like that. But the problem is that when a lot of people read that statement and don't have the knowledge uh, of esports that, let's say, a Ted Leonis has, they think that esports is, let's say, one sport. So they, mm-hmm. they think that, oh, this one sport has the potential, and then they go and they hear about an up-and-coming esports title, and they think it's the same as all of esports together. Uh, or they don't know about things like ad block rate in esports or difficulty monetizing and the challenges that esports has. So they see it as one blanket statement, which, you know, is a lot, diff- a lot more difficult if you read it on paper as opposed to giving him the time to explain it and talk about the nuances yeah, of that's esports. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. 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 I, I, think that's so, a, I think that's a good way to interpret it. I think you're right. And I, and I would just add this, and Joe, I'd like to get your opinion on this, is that I think one reason it's not really apples to apples is, uh, well, two, two aspects of that. One is, I think Maurice is right, we're, we're talking about kind of a, um, in, in the case of the phrase or word esports, it's, it really encompasses a lot of things. And you take a, one individual league like NFL and RBA, it's obviously more compressed um, and more confined in a way than like all physical outdoor sports or indoor sports or something like that. But what I was going to say is that in the case of esports, we're looking at a fundamental business model that's still not really well understood yet or even established, as opposed to uh, traditional sports, especially the big ones like the big TV sports, NFL and NBA, baseball, et cetera, where there is this fundamental economic driver that while it's while being under pressure right now because of cord cutting and things like that, still is the primary driver of massive value, and that is the television advertising business that supports all the broadcasts, and esports does not have that. But what we're seeing with businesses like Twitch and others is that there are new monetization techniques and approaches that are being established now that have the potential, I believe, based on what I've read, to actually be bigger than what has been established like with this, as we say, TV industrial complex. It's going to take time. It's going to be uh, more complicated, but it feels like we're on a, a path in that direction. Joe, do you agree? So a couple points. Um, when that statement came out, <clears throat> there were a couple of um, colleagues that I'd been talking to who were around, especially the NBA, um, when David Stern was commissioner. And they pointed out something, and I actually put it in a blog post this week, that in 2002, 
David Stern got up at the NBA All-Star Game in Philadelphia and said, the NBA will have franchises in Europe in the next 10 years. Well, mm-hmm. we know that hasn't happened. Right. Um, we know that the NBA has grown in tremendous ways. But, you know, when, when someone like that throws stuff out there and, and when you're in a position of power, you can throw things out there to see what sticks. And I, I think that's the case. And you look at, you know, I remember Sean McManus at the U.S. Open in 2000 and maybe it was 2000, 2001, got up and said, 3D TV will change the way sports is viewed. And anybody who's mm-hmm. got 3D goggles knows that they're sitting in a draw somewhere because 3D TV was a tremendous failure. Um, mm-hmm. I think when you look at esports, and, and by the way, the other thing I'll say about that is, you know, again, I too have, I was with Zach Leontis in Washington this week. We had dinner. Uh, we talked about a lot of things. You know, he's, they're obviously very bullish. But I think when you look at the properties that they own, and if Ted Leontis owned the Washington Redskins or the Baltimore Ravens, I don't think he would have made that statement. And that's the one sport that they took a look at and said, you know, we'll be bigger than the NFL. Not the NBA, not the NHL, not even a real No, no, he did, whoa, whoa, whoa. he did mention the NBA in that sentence. I just checked it yeah. actually while we're talking. Yeah, he did mention the NBA. But the focus was still on the NFL. And I think that right. I, I, I think that all that has to be factored in. You know, I agree with Maurice on a lot of what he said is that there's going to be a shakeout uh, of where this goes. And, you know, and there's no downside to saying that if you're well-invested and well-versed in something that you really mm-hmm. believe in. And they obviously believe in, you know, where esports and gaming is going to go. Uh, and the other piece of that, which we didn't touch on, and, you know, we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, is the gambling side. Because, you know, there is absolutely, you know, in addition to traditional sports, that if gambling becomes legal some point in the next 18 months to two years, and I think that's kind of the window where all these things will shake out, that that the gambling side will also play into the popularity of esports because there will be a lot of money spent in gambling with non-traditional sports-engaged people who like esports versus watching the NFL or the NBA, and that's another whole market. And and Monumental is 100% behind and been very vocal about the gambling space. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of ways that this will play out. I still think, you know, especially when, when you know, loud voices have a chance to make statements, you know, that's kind of the way it plays out. I was at um, the uh, Wharton Sports Business Conference about a month ago, and Vasu Kilkarni was there, and, you know, and, and Tom, as you know, Vasu and Crossover like to kind of say things. Uh, but he had an interesting point. He said, you know, one of the reasons why Dan Gilbert didn't invest in some of the esports that other in, uh, owners have invested in is because when they looked at the valuation, you know, there's a lot of people throwing things in, and there's no proof that there's any return on anything. He's, and one of the, the funnier lines was he said, you know, so you've got all these Overwatch teams with these, a lot of these kids who are from, you know, great players from Russia and Asia. And he said, you know, and if an 18-year-old Korean kid who doesn't speak English stands up there and says my valuation is $3 million, how are you going to fight it? Because you don't know. So, and mm-hmm. so I think we're going to know more definitely by the first half of 2017, 2018 about where kind of the value is. And I absolutely think that, that it's a thing. I don't think that it's not a thing. I think that there no. is a business there. But I think a lot of the, you know, like MMA 10 years ago, and I've said this before, it's very, very similar where there's going to be a shakeout. Uh, and, you know, and you're going to see a consolidation, like you're going to see a consolidation in gambling, um, where, you know, some of the bigger players and the well-positioned players and the well-informed players are going to kind of win out. And that's where I think we're, we're going to see you know, fairly quickly in, in esports and gaming in 2018. 
All right, well, let me ask you both of you this question, which was hotly debated in my class this fall, and Joe came up in the Columbia Digital Media event we had last week uh, briefly, which is the question, will eSports be brought into the 2024 Olympics? So my opinion, both of you. Wow. So see, here's my opinion. Okay. Although the Olympics are trying to get younger, and we agree with that, one of the things that esports has to do, number one, is there has to be clear demarcation in who's running what, what games it could be, because it won't be all of esports. It would be, you know, kind of a, you know, a free for all. So they'd have to identify it. The other thing that esports does not have that is part of the Olympic growth pattern now is a high concentration of women. So they are adding sports that have a lot of women and, and attract the demographic. And right now, esports is a male-dominated business. So could it be a discipline? Maybe. You know, it would have to be added under something else, I think. Maybe there's a way to add it under, you know, the X Games title, you know, and all the, the extreme sports that they do. I don't see it being added as as a separate program. I think that that's, you know, that's all, you know, that that's like, you know, the amount of time and effort that would have to go in. It would it could be added under something as a discipline, not as a, a particular sport. And I think the way the easiest way to get in, like they've done with, um, you know, if you look at, you know, skating or or other things where you add a discipline. And what the, by the way, what they may do in 2020 with three-on-three basketball is added under the discipline of basketball. So you may see esports added under a discipline of extreme sports, which is already part of the Olympics. Uh, but I think there's going to have to be a lot of thought and work put into it before, you know, you're going to see gamers at Paris in 2024. Although, you know, there's been a lot of talk of Intel adding some kind of um, esports demonstration as part of their sponsorship, um, probably a little bit in Korea and then definitely in Japan going forward. So, you know, you got to kind of figure out what it's going to be. Is it going to be a winter sport? Is it going to be a summer sport? So, um, you know, it's got its challenges, but I think it has to evolve into something that is equally accessible for men and women and has to be totally above board in terms of any kind of scandal or any kind of leadership. And I I just, and Maurice, you know, you can say whether you agree or not, but, you know, that's not where overall gaming is right now. No. So, Maurice, what do you, what do you I, think about the Olympics? I, first of all, uh, I agree with a lot of what Joe said. Um, I think that, I think that the Olympics, and I've said this before, the Olympics leads esports more, and esports needs the Olympics. Um, esports really doesn't need it. Um, I think there are a lot of struggles, whether it is. From a, from a kind of a governmental perspective, as Joe mentioned, but also the Olympics uh, really don't want, um, I can't see them have a Counter-Strike tournament, which is like a, you know, that's a, a game with guns. Um, if they have something, it might be like something like a Dota or a Rocket League. Rocket League is soccer with cars. So that's obviously, you know, they can't have every game because it goes against the spirit of the Olympics. I think mm-hmm. the Olympics is such an, with all due respect, it's it's a very archaic, um, you know, uh, organization. So I think they'll, similar to some people in esports, you know, they'll make some mistakes and and then they'll end up, you know, making some right decisions. Uh, I, 
I don't see a lot of publishers being too excited to be in the Olympics uh, because they they like their own programming and they like to keep their hand on it. Um, I do think we'll see some type of esports stuff, as as one of you mentioned, with the with Intel has an exhibition at at the PyeongChang Games. I definitely see um, see uh, Tokyo do, taking a, a larger step because it's 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 such a it's it's a gaming capital of the world by some people by some people's standards. So uh, I do think we'll see a lot more integration. I think by 2024 it'll probably have it at the Olympics, uh, but then again it's it's uh, uh, similar to let's say an NCAA getting into esports. It's really difficult to take an existing structure that isn't made for esports and kind of put esports in there and just be like, okay, now now work wonders for us. So it'll be it'll have to be done really really well, and that'll be the challenge. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, to think that it's seven and a half years away, or depending on uh, when they actually choose to do it, winter or spring, I guess could be different. But um, with the rate of acceleration in the marketplace, the entertainment marketplace, the media marketplace, the tech marketplace, I, I would say um, it's almost impossible to know where that business will be uh, that far away. Uh, but what I would say is, and something, Joe, we've learned through the years of following this business and being, being in the business and paying attention to this, is that if there's money to be made through television ratings and sponsorship support with a new competition, like in, in some one form or another in this space of esports, they will do it. That will be the driving factor, in my opinion. Uh, it always has been, and the people that were naysayers about action sports back in the 90s, we watched what happened with that, or a beach volleyball, or whatever was controversial when it was first introduced as an idea. So, um, anyway, it's going to be fun to watch. Joe, let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. You mentioned gambling, and this is such a hot topic and one that we like to cover a lot. You probably know more about it than most people that I've met in the business, because uh, I know you. I know you watch the developments quite closely. Paint a picture for us about how that issue will play out in 2018. Um, it, it's funny. I picked up um, my daughter, who's a senior at George Washington University, on uh, earlier this week. So we were driving back, and we were driving through Delaware, and there are these big billboards about, you know, go to Delaware Park and spend money on pro football legal wagering. Uh, because hmm. Delaware is one of the states that, that's grandfathered in, and they've actually done a pretty good job of creating a program for legal gambling on football um, for probably the last two or three years. But, but what, what I think realistically will happen uh, is that there will be a ruling sometime in the spring by the Supreme Court, which in all likelihood will favor the state of New Jersey, which will basically overturn um, the existing legislation. Uh, and then it will, it will allow some form of governmental control over legalized sports gambling. What that looks like, and there are two very different paths. Anybody who's ever played the lottery knows one path, which is a state-regulated, state-by-state system um, where states have control and there is some federal overlay to it, but it's really state. You know, New York can set up 
one lottery system, New Jersey can set up another lottery system. California has another one. Um, that That's one path. The other path, which I think the leagues have kind of intimated that they would like, is one kind of universal federally mandated system that is that is put into place across every state. Because if you get into um, all the breakdowns with what could happen in gambling, you have states where things like paramutual wagering are not allowed still. Um, you have, like Utah, uh, you have states where there are much more liberal rules where things are allowed. You have the five states that were already grandfathered in, uh, of which only two, um, obviously Nevada and Delaware are two of the ones that, that are already trying to figure out how to take advantage of these things. Um, and then you have you know, an, another whole business run by the casinos, which you're starting to see consolidation now, uh, just in general in the, in the gambling industry, um, which will go in and say, you know, we would like this. You know, if I'm MGM Grand, I will put sports books in, you know, the 37 brick-and-mortar casinos that we have. So on top of that, you've got all the Indian uh, and the tribal casinos, which are governed totally differently than than traditional casinos or ones owned by big corporations. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- there's going to be a big shakeout. I think one of the things that will happen is um, you will see a little bit of the rebirth of something, Tom, which we haven't talked about in a while, and it's the bigger daily fantasy companies, who, mm-hmm. and especially FanDuel and DraftKings, um, who could be in a really interesting position because they are in the kind of wagering business, depending on who you talk to, but they also have tremendous data for the teams in the leagues who either are partners with them or partially owned by them uh, of people who are immediately interested in some kind of legalized wagering. So mm-hmm. you know, you're going to see FanDuel and DraftKings, I think, become bigger factors, especially, I would say, um, DraftKings a little bit more than FanDuel um, going back and forth. So, so where this ends up, I would say, and that's why I think it's, we're still a couple of years away from where all this shakes out uh, because, uh, as you can see, you know, especially next year, we're going to go into midterm elections in the United States. So um, you know, you're not going to see people, um, politicians who are up for re-election or challenging a seat next November come the middle of the summer saying, oh, I'm going to take a stand on, on you know, federal or state-run sports gambling. That's not going to be on the agenda. So then you push into this time next year where it will really kind of come into focus. And probably I would say a year from now, if everything goes well, you'll have a better kind of framework as to where this will go. And then it will be implemented at some point probably, you know, if everybody thinks it will work out that well in 2019, um, but, you know, the ramp up to that will be uh, a hiring boom, an analytics boom, an advertising boom, a new company boom um, mm-hmm. for gambling companies that will come into the United States and start positioning. So if I'm a young person who has an interest in analytics, you know, I would start to learn a lot more about kind of the, the gaming gambling industry um, because that's where there are going to be a lot of jobs, not just on that side, but also I think on the team side, you know, one of the things I've talked about before is, you know, teams are going to start hiring a new position. Like they, five years ago, no one had social media managers or directors. Now every team has one. You're going to see director of gaming as a title that is going to start coming up for every team, every league, um, every kind of ancillary business around director of gaming or manager of gaming 
you know, which will encompass some of the things we've talked about, like esports, gambling, probably daily fantasy, um, and some of the other analytics-driven businesses uh, that fans will be engaged with, all under that that title. And I think I think it's people are saying billions of dollars in revenue. Who knows if that's true? But I think that, you know there, there is definitely a revenue stream that is going to be captured and you know brought into the mix. So two years from now, we're going to be talking about you know gaming rights access deals versus you know just kind of traditional media rights. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we you're right. The, the numbers that get mentioned are stupefying. But you, there there are times I wonder whether – and when you think about segmentation of potential sports gamblers, there's always going to be the hardcores, you know, the avid gamblers who are probably already finding ways to bet, either mm-hmm. legally or illegally. That's just the nature of that beast. Um, but then for, for it to really expand dramatically, they're going to have to attract more casual um, gamblers or wagers mm-hmm. or, or people, as you said, put it Damn. in the context of a – well, just regular fans, let's say, who are inclined to do things like fantasy sports or daily fantasy, et cetera. And we've seen kind of the, the seasonal daily fantasy marketplace um, plateau. I, I think this is about accurate based on the FSTA data, somewhere in the mid-50 millions, like 50 to 55 million players in North America. Does that sound right? Yep, I think so. Something like that, yeah. Yep. And then for daily, we, we think maybe it's somewhere between 5 and 10 million. At this Probably. Point, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Harder to get right. So in other words, they're not it's not huge penetration compared to number one population, number two, the alleged uh size of these uh fan bases for the major sports like NFL, which I think often claims in its promotional material that it has and I forget what these numbers are, they're crazy, like hundred and fifty million fans in the US or something like that. So I, I guess I'm wondering, uh and I'd love your your guys' opinion whether if it's all if it's legalized in one form or another and it's made more accessible and the user experiences and the interfaces to do it become really easy, is that going to bring in all these new wagerers? I just, I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, I think one area that I think is important and there was a building owner, it wasn't Scott O'Neill. I can't remember who it was at one of the conferences that we were at in the fall um, where they talked about, look, we're looking to do things like get rid of concession stands and keep people in their seats. And I think one of the places where, and, and we've seen teams like the Jets do this now, where they are providing experiences in the digital world on their app that are available to enhance ex- uh, the, the fan experience in stadium, in arena, versus people who are sitting at home. So, you know, Mark Cuban has talked about this is, is it a good thing for people to be looking at their phones, you know, wagering or getting virtual currency so that, you know, they can get an extra slice of pizza or they're getting a discount on a T-shirt or winning money? Is that, is that worth it to keep them in their seats when a game, especially a game like baseball, is going on for three hours and there's a blowout and people would want to leave, you know, after the fifth inning or leave an NBA game after the third quarter? You know, if, if there is there enough of an incentive and, by the way, the other thing is the connectivity in arenas and stadiums. Is it good enough at that point? Because that's going to be an issue. Everybody's going to have to have really good mobile connectivity like they have in other places in the world um, so that they are engaged and enthralled enough to stay an hour, 45 minutes 
in the stadium when they normally wouldn't do it because they're they're taking part in this experience of you know playing against your friends and you know it's almost like a 50-50 where I'm not going to leave now because the 50-50 that I put money in for is now $30,000 but isn't giving out until the last minute of the fourth quarter so I got to stay to see if I'm going to win. Um mm-hmm. you know that that's a really interesting kind of play as to where this is going to be and enhancing the fan experience now does that make bring in more fans? Maybe not, but it certainly gives you if you are at a game probably more added financial incentive to stay around and engage more and buy more and drink more uh, and eat more than if you know you're just kind of bugging out after the third period. Yeah, that's a good yeah. question because I think most of the most of the discussion around this that I've been part of has related specifically or or it's been focused more on the Gen Z marketplace. How do we make our in-stadium or in-arena experience attractive to young people who have a second-screen, first-kind mentality, where they are used to media gratification through smartphones and tablets, et cetera, and they're not as inclined to be patient in the course of, let's say, a three-hour-plus football or baseball game or a two-and-a-half-hour basketball game. And they, to your point, Joe, they're – a lot, of, a lot of venues and teams are thinking of ways to come up with ideas, applications, enhancements to existing applications that can do that. So it could be AR enhancements that are put into these venue apps. It could be like the business like Drop It, you know, with these reverse auctions, which is an interesting thing that mm-hmm. kind of a gamification of the auction um, thing. Um, but the bottom line is uh, it, it seems like it's, a very significant challenge because ultimately the, the fans who are 15 or 17 are going to be the ones who are 25 and 30 who are the ones who are going to be ostensibly spending the money to actually go back for more in-person experiences. And it seems like that's a, um, that's a really big challenge because the kind of like what I said before with the gambler and the gambling market, it's true in any market, you know, with the avids and the serious, fans that that have been around for a while, they probably don't care about a lot of this stuff. I mean, it Mm -hmm. all looks good and sounds good in in the press and with press releases and things like that, but I think a lot of regular, just pure fans of the sport who go in person to enjoy the live experience of a sporting event don't necessarily want any of that stuff. So it seems to be catering to the young people and uh, I guess after I say that, I should ask the youngest guy in this crowd, Maurice, <laughs> his opinion on that issue because he, he attends a lot of games. So what do you think, Maurice? Well, are you talking about these uh, gambling or are you talking about these added technological No, no, beyond, beyond gambling, like these, these tactics and these strategies and tactics that are being developed by venues and teams to find, as Joe said, kind of increased engagement in, uh, during the experiences themselves so as not to allow their customers to be bored or, or distracted or whatever, but to, to just get deeper um, engagement, which has a business benefit too, because it also involves collecting more data and understanding of the fan base and, again, may be attractive to teenagers if, if there's the right kind of application or a game or event in the stadium. So I think a lot of it is we've reached to the point where the added value of paying, you know, 50 bucks 
plus your travel costs, plus your concession costs to go to the stadium as opposed to watching it at home. That added value of being in a stadium is getting smaller and smaller, uh, especially for younger people of whom watching a game on your computer with friends or watching it on, you know, on TV is, is, you know, it's, it's, it might be a preferable product as opposed to going to the stadium, uh, which I think lots of people, lots of people in the sports industry don't want to hear. But a lot of people are like, I don't want to, you know, pay all that money, you know, go for a couple hours for, for a team that I'm not a huge fan of, that I'm not a hardcore, you know, if I'm not a hardcore fan. So they have to find ways to, to get butts into the seat. Uh, so I think definitely – uh, it's it's necessary. Uh, I think will I think otherwise you'll just lose an audience. I don't know yet if the ROI is there. If you pay millions of dollars for a AR added added stuff in your stadium, if that will uh, will translate into enough profit to make to make up for that. But furthermore, I think Tom one one statement that you um, like to say a lot, which I think rings very true in this case, is uh, what David Stern said. We enable our our fans to watch less of our content. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how he said that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we'll get to a point where the at-home experience is just preferable. I mean, i give you an example. You know, uh, Twitch with G League. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think G League is that big that it'll drive a big audience, but it's user-generated commentary of the game. So your preferable, um, you know, on-air personality, internet personality, is giving play-by-play of the content. You have access to all stats with a click of a mouse, like that. It's all integrated. You can talk. Like the, there's a social aspect because there's a chat going on, and you're talking with other fans. We'll get to a point where, yeah, why, should, why would I want to go to a stadium? In a stadium, I, I can't hear my favorite, uh, my favorite, you know, UGC, user-generated, play-by-play. Uh, I can't hear that. I don't have access to all, to all this information. So I think we'll get to, we're getting to a point very soon that even the, most, the, even the most loyal fan might decide to stay home more often. And I don't think that's mm-hmm. necessarily, a bad, necessarily a bad thing, it's disruptive. I don't think it's bad per se. Well, that's that's an interesting uh, statement when you say it's not bad per se. I think uh, for the legacy sports business, it is a bad thing. Uh, and I'm not judging it, by the way. I'm just saying it's it's a bad thing because it really messes with the the formula in terms of fan engagement and monetization that drives this business. A big part of which is the in-stadium experience or the in-arena experience. So the communal aspect of everyone coming out for the game. So let's take a Giants game as an example. Although this has been a disappointing season, doesn't stop people from coming three or four hours early, having massive tailgate parties, spending uh, a lot of time with their friends there, sitting through three and a half hours sometimes of uh, bad football, and then – having the pleasure of sitting in traffic just to get out of the arena or the, or the parking lot for 45 minutes or an hour. I've, I've done this many times and it drives me insane that for, for what, I mean, I usually get tickets through a friend, so I'm not necessarily paying for the ticket, but the parking and the, and the tolls and everything like that, it becomes this 
huge hassle, but it's really essential to the Giants because it's a it's an enormous revenue generator. Obviously, it also helps create the television package that we all enjoy every week, which is packed stadia with excite in certain cases exciting games, certain cases not exciting. But you know what I mean? Like that's the like the aura of sports is having that mm-hmm. that live audience. And this com- with this communal experience to so see that dwindle would be a you know radical change in the business. But I don't disagree with Maurice Joe. I don't know what you think, but uh, when you look at the cost to go to get decent seats at most of these pro games, and you think about the cost of the con- uh, the concession stands, the cost of parking if it happens to be in the burbs, whatever, it's beyond the reach of a lot of people that are on uh, more limited income, particularly young people. But yet, as you say that, attendance isn't necessarily going down tremendously yet. Um, and I still think that there is – now, I don't think I would go seven times a year to an NFL game. But I think there are – you know, especially given where stadia are now and they're becoming more accessible – um, there's still something to be said for the communal experience. And mm-hmm. although – Tom, neither you nor I went to big college football schools, and Maurice, you didn't either. It still blows me away that, you know, the traditions of college athletics, although people say it's waning a little bit, and the dedication of going to massive stadiums in Tennessee and Alabama and Mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest and the Midwest are still time-honored traditions, not just with older alumni, but for everyone from little kids you know, through through seniors. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, yes, we are going to go through some kind of evolution, and, and I think of two things. One is um, I remember Jay Larkin, the late Jay Larkin, when we ran our mixed martial arts league, his idea was, you know, you go into basically a giant soundstage like American Gladiator did, and you create your live events not worrying about the audience in the stadium, but you're creating this experience outside. And then I think about something like, I remember watching the Jetsons, and George Jetson would go to a what was a you know a souped-up robotic football game, and he'd be in his car, and there'd be a giant um, kind of conveyor belt that would come over, pick him up out of his car, take him physically over the top of the stadium, and drop him into a seat, and then take him back so he didn't have to worry about parking. <laughs> so you know, you know, you know, maybe we're going to evolve into you know, and then you you know, you remember. Um, in Bugs Bunny, where you know one of the things they talked about in the future was smellovision replacing television. So, right. um, you know, so I think you know we're going to go through some kind of evolutionary process here. Um, you know, you've seen baseball now that you know the stadia, even though they have short, very short shelf lives now, the stadia are smaller, uh, and the experience is better than it's ever been before. And you know they're more concerned about making sure they're taken care of. 25,000 people versus 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, where all this is going to evolve, you know, certainly isn't going to happen in 2018, but, you know, you're going to keep a careful eye on, you know, what attendance is and how attendance is measured versus the overall fan experience. And I think Maurice is right. You know, the communal experience that, that people like now with a second screen uh, and being able to customize your view and, you know, there are games coming up that ESPN is doing where they're going to provide three or four different, you know, experiences that people could watch either online or on various channels that they have. Uh, and uh, the thing that I want to talk about, you know, in, in the next few minutes before we let everybody go looking forward is, 
you know, that shared experience and your your guys' thoughts on, you know, Maurice touched on Twitch, but where Twitch can take a property like the NFL tied to Amazon, their owner, um, and then kind of the other kind of bells and whistles that we're hearing and what you guys think about VR and AR and, um, you know, um, alternative learning experiences and artificial intelligence and what you guys think we're going to see there, you know, as we go through the, at least through the first half of 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with um, some comments that we got into or, or discussion we got into at the event last week, which is about this idea, uh, and Twitch is now probably the best proprietor of this new approach, um, the idea of kind of alternative production approaches. So one of the quotes that I mentioned last week that to me was one of the most provocative of all of 2017 was, Adam Silver a few months ago saying that he wanted NBA games to look more like Twitch. And for those of us that know what Twitch is, we kind of know what he meant. It's, it's really a reconception of what we're looking at as television or um, digital device consumers of the sport. And that would include alternative production approaches, alternative commentaries, uh, real-time chat and other media sharing as part of the screen experience, uh, et cetera. And to me, that's going to be the big change that will start to evolve more quickly in 2018. So we're seeing it a little bit with the NFL. They now had, I think they had broadcast a couple of Thursday night games, Joe, and the sky cam view. Mm-hmm. Um, and as some of you know, the reason they did that, it was that it actually, or one of the reasons they did it was it mimics the video game view. So the Madden view, some people call it. Right, which is being behind the quarterback looking down and having kind of that video game football experience. And for a 17-year-old boy who's been potentially or possibly playing Madden, that might be a more appealing way to watch a football game. But for a 50-year-old you know, football-watching veteran, they may say, what's, what's this newfangled approach? I want my old fangled. So, yeah, so toggle over to traditional view. Um, I mean, look, you see, this, you see this in every other aspect of digital media where we have personalization, customization, different kinds of user experience options. So to me, it's an inevitability that that's where this all goes. And I think that will accelerate in 2018. I, for one, love the idea, like Maurice in the G League example, where I think they've already announced there's going to be 10 different commentator options you have. Is that right? Something like that? I I think they – I think they picked a couple. I don't know. I, I watched one game, and I just watched it with one commentator, so I, I don't know about that. Okay, but I think that was one of the what, kind of one of the selling points. So if I want, for example, I don't know, a comedic take on watching Monday Night Football, maybe I'm watching a version that they that they've tried unsuccessfully in the past, like with I don't know Tony Kornheiser or Dennis Miller or other comedians, or if I want something that's really hardcore X's and O's you're doing it with some like analytics guy. If you want something that's just really simplistic and minimalist, maybe it's no commentary or, Hey, click here for your local radio call or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, Joe, don't you get the sense like the business almost has to go that way to please new customers? I, I think the access to whatever it is that you want and how you want to consume it, as long as you're consuming it is the most important thing. So, Mm Um, and, and I remember when I worked at um, Sports Channel 100 years ago, 
we were the first ones to decide to do, and, and networks have tested these, but not on kind of the micro level that we're talking about now. Uh, you know, we were the first ones to have Jiggs McDonald do an Islanders game from behind the net, which is the way that um, scouts traditionally watch a game. So you watch, you watch hockey develop uh, in that format. I remember, Tom, I don't know if you remember the first time that NBC – did a broadcast without announcers. They did it for a Jets Dolphins game, probably I don't even know, 1985, 86, um, and it was just kind of the natural sound, and you watched the game on NBC without any announcers. So, so it's been tried before. It's never been tried in kind of you know the Chinese menu of pick 17 different ways you want to watch it right. and figure out how you want to watch it. And I, I definitely think the technology exists. And the micro cameras exist now, so why not try that? And by the way, if you're going to have, you know, all these other people come in and, you know, create their own broadcasts, it's great for whoever the broadcaster is because you're going to get a test of who may be broadcasting games going forward without having to do anything and go and look at agent tapes because suddenly, you know, people are going to emerge from those type of things. I think it's great. Right. So. No, no, but that's a good point, and I think you think of something like. Monday Night Football, which is one of the most important single franchises in all of sports media, so it's ESPN's product right now. And as you guys know, they have an announcing team of Sean McDonough and John Gruden, both very capable guys, but it's really no different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 40 years ago. It's kind of the same tried-and-true yep. formula that for Joe, for me and you, that might be fine. I just want to watch the game. I don't personally love either of those guys, but I'll watch the game. Um, but if you're 20 years old or Maurice's age or a teenager, that could, that could be insufferably boring in the way mm -hmm. that game is presented to you. So yep. it feels like one of, one of the tension points in the business is that this kind of intellectual understanding that well, I think what I just said is a fair point that most people would agree who know even a little bit about marketing or, you know, c consumer behavior, um, but a little bit of, d of denial on the part of some of these legacy businesses that they really have to try more radical approaches to help stem the tide, right, mm -hmm. of ratings declines and things like that. So yep. point, my point, overarching point, is I think the ratings declines and the pressure to maintain audience, to your point, Joe, ultimately it's all about just getting the eyeballs, getting the attention, getting the minutes. And if they have to be more aggressive, more radical in the way that happens with alternative cameras and alternative announcers and things like that, I think it'll accelerate because it, it has to. There, if anybody has any better ideas, it's time to speak up, but we haven't heard any. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, uh, just uh, to get on one. that. Um, so... This isn't for 2018. This will be a couple of years, a few years later. But production is only going to get cheaper. I mean, we've already have we already have that company that does completely robotic basketball broadcasts. So they're they're just going to be a lot cheaper. So and also I I believe that the younger audience they don't need that super slick production quality when they're watching sports. They just want to have you know a decent quality. So then it's all about platforms. It's not necessarily about one linear stream. It's about having a platform that allows the consumers themselves to to customize their game. So whether it is different viewing options, but also like we already hinted out before, is having these 
different broadcasting stream, which I believe will will get to a point where it's all user generated. Similar to the the Twitch, the general Twitch stuff, all the content is user generated. So a perfect example can be if you are a a uh, a local YouTuber that talks a lot about sports, about the Knicks, and you're very popular and have a niche audience of let's say ten, twenty thousand people and the Knicks have a game on Twitch, you're gonna you know, you're gonna do the play by play. You're just gonna do it from your home with a decent microphone and your audience is gonna flock to you and that's great for you because you're gonna make you're you're gonna become a partner on that platform and you're gonna make kickback based on ad revenue. And it's perfect for the for the um for the for the platform because they can they can get on all of these uh all of these revenues and they can get all of these niche audiences to come and, and get an enhanced experience. So I think that's a lot more where we're gonna end up going to. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so so before uh, we kinda let everybody go, uh, as we're pretty far down the line. Tom, what are some of the things that, that you're really kind of looking at in Maurice, um, you two, outside of the space that we've talked about? So we've talked about esports and gambling and um, some of the other things that you are interested to see how they're going to play out. Uh, and we could touch on everything from, you know, Tom, one of our favorite topics, Barstool Sports, and where that's going to go mm-hmm. or not go, or um, where rights are going to go, the Olympics and the World Cup. Um, what are some of the things that you think people should have their eye on and what you guys are watching, you know, from when the ball drops in Times Square to, um, let's say, the beginning of the World Cup in June? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I'd go to my one of my favorite topics, which you're well aware of, and I know you think about this a lot too, and we've discussed it many times throughout the year on the podcast, and that is the pressure on leagues and teams to – uh, build and, and scale their direct-to-consumer businesses in whatever form those takes. So we've got the networks, we've got the, the over-the-top products that are proliferating, et cetera. But that is the name of the game. Uh, a lot of the power and influence in the world of entertainment, which includes sports and media, has been ceded over the last few years, as everybody now knows and understands, to this duopoly of Facebook and Google uh, which absolutely dominate advertising, which is still the primary primary revenue driver of the sports business to this day, and uh, by a by a wide margin. And um, they've got to all these different properties have to figure out ways to combat that. So I don't think they're all going to abandon social media platforms, but I I I do think there's going to be uh, an even more aggressive effort to find that right formula for direct to consumer. So mimicking kind of what WWE has done with the WWE network, which now roughly is like a million and a half, et cetera. So all these early experiments that we've seen come to the market the last couple of years, I think now will start evolving into more, hopefully more substantive businesses with real sustainability and growth opportunities. Uh, I'm not saying that's easy. I, I think the, um, the fickle behavior, particularly of the cord cutters and the young consumers, is still a wild card in this entire business, and, I, and that's something I feel very strongly about. I think we're kind of underestimating the willingness for lots of young people not to be, as I often like to say, the customers 
broadly defined that this industry has relied on for 50 years. Um, but we got to keep trying. As an industry, we got to keep trying. So we're going to see those products evolve. Uh, everybody's been experimenting with different kinds of subscription offers and prices and deals and things like that. And everyone's going to try to have to figure out what you want to kind of keep for yourself as an owned and operated, so to speak, versus what you're selling on the big stage to the big television and digital companies, and then what you're selling kind of more piecemeal, let's say the skinny bundles and things like that. That to me is probably one of the most interesting parts of the business for 2018, because as I often like to say, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going back in. So now everybody's got to tackle that challenge, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Maurice? Well, Tom, you beat me to uh, to my first choice, but I, I have two small things that I think are, are, are going to start bubbling up in 2018, and that will, and, and that we'll, look at, we'll look at a couple years from now and see 2018 as the starting point. The first one is, I think, the explosion of podcasts, from, uh, even from a sports perspective. I think podcasts have, have been the sleeping giants, and you guys have known that for, for years because that will, that's why we have the Cuffs show. But uh, I think we'll see everyone in sports and entertainment get more invested into it because it's, it's becoming more and more a force to be reckoned with. Second is very futuristic, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing how the uh, how the blockchain will be implemented in sports, mm-hmm. yep. um, and mm-hmm. not necessarily like Bitcoin and that type of stuff, but smart contracts. So completely getting rid of middlemen, um, like getting rid of let's say, the, for instance, with ticketing, getting rid of the ticket masters of the world, um, or not getting rid of them, but making it easier and 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 just giving the consumer a completely automated experience that that will that will you know completely enhance their experience and and cut down on a lot of cost for the sports industry. Mm-hmm. Um Joe, I'm going to take you? what do you got what do yep. you got? So a couple things. One is uh I said this in my class a couple weeks ago is and we've seen some of the unfortunate dark side scandalous things that have happened with senior executives in sports um, in you continue to play out. But I think the fact that if we think that there is going to be a player or players who are not going to be involved in some sort of scandal along these way, this way that could affect the outcome of games. Um, I think you're going to see that pop up somewhere in the first quarter, um, which is, you know, another, path that unfortunately sports will go down I think um, and how that will be handled and and where that will play out and and it's not unlike other things that have happened with athletes in the past Uh, but I think this will be a much bigger focus especially when you look at the leagues really like the NBA and the NHL that have avoided a lot of the issues that the NFL uh, and now Major League Baseball have gone through in the last um, in the last month of 2017 I think that's number one the other thing also kind of along the same lines and you know, we've seen, you know, now John Skipper stepped down at ESPN, um, is where this kind of um, Disney-focused business around MLB Advanced Media goes when it launches on this new platform in the first quarter or towards the end of the first quarter of 2018, uh, what that looks like, what the content is going to be there, how everybody's going to kind of play in the same sandbox or not play in the same sandbox. And the offshoot of that is, 
you know, every day we see someone else offering a streaming service now, um, whether it's CBS, NBC, Stadium, uh, obviously everything that that um, that uh, Amazon is doing. Uh, so, you know, what am I going to pay for? What am I not going to pay for? Um, you know, how much money am I going to spend? Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd even loop into there, you know, things like um, the athletic and, you know, how much money will I spend for content mm-hmm. that is targeted to me but is only written? And how do I bundle all these things together? Who's going to be the great bundler somewhere down the line that's going to provide the package uh, that I could kind of uh, pick from an a la carte menu, whether it's print, video, audio, that I can kind of put together my own package. And, Tom, I've said this to you before, is in the newspaper business right now, if, if there was a platform out there where I could pick and say, I would like the Washington Post sports, the Boston Globe sports, you know, news from the Wall Street Journal, USA Today's lifestyle section, uh, the New York Post sports section, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution entertainment section. That's what I would want, and I would pay X number of dollars for that. It doesn't exist right now. I think it has to exist somewhere down the line, and I think that's going to be kind of the shakeout of whatever the, the content package that's going to be offered in video somewhere down the line as rights fees play out. But, you know, I think one of the, the harbingers of that is going to be whatever this ESPN thing is, you know, with MLB Advanced Media, which is now currently going to be run by Michael Paul, to see where all that plays out. That's Those are the two things, you know, on the positive side and kind of the dark side that I think would be worth watching. And then obviously you've got the Olympics. And then will the United States actually be very, very interested in the Fox property, which is the World Cup without Team USA being involved. Uh, and that will show us really kind of where soccer is going in the United States, if, the, if that's a, a big audience. Right. Joe, let me just pick up on one thing. I know we want to wrap in a second, but this is an interesting one because your second answer related to my answer. And I, I didn't know we had more than we could do more than one category, by the way. So, uh, But I, I focused on the OTT part. But on your, to your point, I think one of the challenges, and I've talked about this before, I've written about it on LinkedIn, and it comes up in my class a lot, and that is kind of the, the pricing uh, psychology in digital media and what has been established in our country. Uh, and this is true in other countries as well, but particularly in the U.S., which we know best, uh, where uh, you look at kind of what's now essentially accepted by most consumers, and that is Netflix subscription, and it's obviously extremely popular, extremely successful now, over 100 million worldwide, is roughly speaking $10 a month. And that's for a lot of content, a lot of television, Mm -hmm. archival television, a lot of archival movies, a lot of increasingly better uh, original programming, et cetera. And when you think about it, compared to going to a crappy movie for $12 in in New York, um, it's a great deal. Um, Spotify, uh, pay Spotify, which I think is about $10 a month, or the one I use, Apple Music, which is $10 a month, or I have family sharing now, it's $15 a month. Access to the unlimited trove of music from the world, and it's not literally all of it, but it's um, um, 99% of what we'd all want. Every time I use Apple Music, which is every day at different points, I marvel at the deal that that is, that I have access to the world's library of music for $15 a month. My point, though, is that I think we've all, as consumers, kind of gotten this mindset that really great content and great content deals should be 
around 10 or $15 a month. And when you look at all the pricing schema around these skinny bundles and some of the OTT packages from leagues, I think this is the, this is the really tricky part of the equation. Like what's actually going to be acceptable to the fans? Like what are they mm-hmm. really willing to pay for? And another point that like Rich Green, Greenfield makes a lot that came up in my class when he visited this year, and you've heard me say this before as well, unlike our relationship with our cable and satellite providers, the toggling on and off of subscriptions, the act of canceling, is as easy as going into the app and tapping a couple of times to get out of it. So there's this kind of more flimsy uh, stickiness you know, with these digital applications. And if the pricing doesn't feel right or you want to be opportunistic with the way you subscribe, like, ooh, I want to go binge on Netflix for a month because that show sounds really great, and then I'll cancel my subscription. Like, that's a really easy thing to do, which wasn't true mm-hmm. in the old media world. So I think that issue is really critical, and it's going to make for a lot of hammering, I think, in the conference rooms of the entertainment and sports companies next year because there's no right answer, but we do have what I'd call the – uh, the Spotify, Netflix mentality well-established now in the buyer's heads. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Okay, uh, thank you. <laughs> so, but the oh, funny actually, thing is, none, we, none of us have any answers to any of this, which is pretty funny. No, so. I, well, look, it's a lot of questions. That's one reason we like talking about it. And as I said to the, mm-hmm. uh, my class when we wrapped up the other day, uh, and you know, Maurice made the point early on in this conversation, is that all we can – uh, can do is try to keep on keeping on and helping each other suss this stuff out to understand the facts and the, the implications of the facts to follow the developments and really process it in a in an analytical thoughtful way so you can bring something to the conversation whether that's a conversation with your boss or in your classroom or with a client or whatever and that's all I try to do and I know you're the same as me Joan it sounds like Maurice, with his budding career, has the same mindset, uh, which, of course, is the key word there, that yep. uh, is important. Um, but that was fun, Joe. Thanks for, uh, thanks for kind of hosting this little roundtable of the, of the CUSP staff. It was yep. fun. And uh, we'll see if we, we've been able to kind of provide insight or we totally have no idea what we're talking about. We'll find that <laughs> as 2018 uh, plays forward. A little bit of hope, <laughs> um, but... Uh, Anyway, Maurice, um, on behalf of Joe and everybody else involved at Columbia, um, thank you uh, publicly so much for all that you've done for us. Uh, You've been a great producer. You've been a great supporter. You've been a great friend. um, And we really appreciate all the good work that you do. Of course. Thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. And talks like these I I I can do every day. I've learned so much just by having this discussion. Yeah, okay. As long as we have, we have, as long as we have uh, each other, then we can keep having these conversations. If no one else wants to listen, forget. You know, don't worry. We won't worry about it. (laughs) All righty. Well, happy holidays, guys. Um, uh, Here's to a big 2018. And by the way, we should mention everybody who's listening that we were just informed by Maurice that we're six shows away from number 100. So we're trying to come up with something clever to commemorate uh, this milestone, which is going to hopefully come up in January. So, Joe, any thoughts, you can email me or text me offline or you too, Maurice. Uh, we'll figure that out. Or if people want to give us suggestions. Or, <laughs> yeah, if any listeners have any suggestions. Or, you know, Joe, we should make an appeal, a quick one, 
for um, ideas about topics and specific guests. Uh, we're happy to take the input. Uh, I think everybody who's been listening knows by now that we're typically um, looking for diverse guests with different experiences in the business, different points of view, different uh, in different parts of the business, and I think we've succeeded with that. We've had a lot of interesting guests on the show, and when uh, certain from time to time, Joe, Joe and I will will kind of reminisce about certain conversations and certain people we've met. And every so often I reflect and it's like, wow, that was really interesting meeting that person or I had no idea that this company was doing these kinds of things. And it's just, it's an amazing experience. So I'm looking forward to keeping it going in 2018. Yep. 100%. All righty. So any final words of wisdom, Reese? Uh, no, looking forward to, uh, to lots more content in 2018. All right, Joe, thank you. That was a good way to wrap it up. Thanks, Maurice. Um, Happy New Year, you guys, and we'll see everybody next time uh, in the new year in 2018 and early January with our next show. We really appreciate everybody listening, and we look forward to having you listen again uh, next year. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my host is Joe Favorito. Our production assistant this week is Columbia student Maurice Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.